You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have a very special guest, John Dingus. He lived in Chile during the Pinochet years, and more importantly, he has been doing research for the past 20 years to find out more about Operation Condor, and he has written a book called The Condor Years, and he is here to talk to us about The Condor Years. So how are you doing? I'm very good. Are you still in Chile or are you back in the no, U.S.? No, I'm in Washington, D.C., so okay. I have a strong, video, a strong uh, network connection. and Excellent. Uh, like, do meetings all the time. So how was um, Chile? How was your most recent trip? I, I was there in, in October and November, mm-hmm. and uh, I was going to go back in January for some book events, and uh, that got canceled because... Uh, COVID was so rampant that I decided it wasn't healthy to do it. Um, and I'm going back in March mm-hmm. to uh, for the inauguration. And then I'll be there with some um, Senator Tom Harkin, uh, former Senator Harkin, and two other congressmen who were um, key figures in the human rights movement, support of human rights in Chile during the, during the 1970s. So they're going back to celebrate with the new president. So it's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. That's great. Um, and uh, so you just re-released the Condor Years, but in Spanish in Chile, right? Yes, in Chile, and the English edition is coming out sometime later this year. I'm still working on it, so it's basically editing the Spanish. The text was basically written in English, but it's too long. Um, mm-hmm. And it includes a lot of material from the earlier book, which I don't have to repeat in the English edition. Yeah, I read the first book um, from 2014, The Condor Years. Yeah. So, yeah, the Spanish edition is is almost twice as long. Is it because you found new information or uh, what happened? Yeah, the, the edition you read was from t- 2005, 2004. Mm-hmm. Or five. There were there was a second edition in two thousand and five, so that was a different task before me um, compared to what I'm able to do now. At that time, there was still a lot of skepticism about what was Operation Condor, the official story from the Chilean military and um, people on the right, was that it was not uh, significant. It was just an exchange of intelligence, didn't do anything wrong. The United States, even, was minimizing the role of Operation Condor, even minimizing its role in the Latelier assassination. So the task of that book was to later rest those doubts, both by uh, inside the U.S. government and uh, particularly people in South America so I, I always write my books for the uh, doubters, not mm-hmm. for the uh, already convinced. Mm-hmm. And so my idea was, and I think I succeeded, was to prove without a shadow of a doubt of what it was, the extent of the violence connected to it, how it was organized, and to probe into the relationship 
between the United States and the military government uh, at the time in the 1970s and try to answer the question of how much complicity the United States had in the crimes of Operation Condor. And of course, I answered that question by looking at U.S. complicity in the crimes of the dictatorship. And then the Operation Condor is a subset of that. And there's slightly different answers to that question, depending on whether you're talking about the overall repression or Operation Condor in particular. So just to, to continue the, the second book, um, the book that I finished last year and that was published last June, in that book, I no longer am trying to prove that this existed. Uh, the people who founded it died in prison. Pinochet died under indictment for crimes associated with Operation Condor. And I was able to now explain the way it operated and go into the cases, the, the hundreds of cases of transnational repression and tell those stories in great detail and explain the apparatus that was functioning in Chile and Argentina, Uruguay, and the other countries, and, and including the way they conducted these international operations in Europe and the United States. So it was a very different level of documentation and proof that I was accomplishing. And I had a ton of new material, uh, new documents from the United States, but in particular, new information from trials that were conducted in Latin America, especially in Chile and in Argentina. Thousands and thousands of testimonies and documents that allowed me to go inside Operation Condor in a way I hadn't been able to do it before, and to tell the stories of the victims. Okay, so um, before we get too far, for those who are not familiar, can you quickly explain what Operation Condor was? Operation Condor was an alliance by the countries in South America that controlled virtually 80% of the population of South America. So Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, Paraguay, and then even Peru and Ecuador came into Operation Condor at the end. The purpose was to repress, to do outside the countries and even outside South America, what they were doing inside their countries, which was to repress the left in particular, but also all of the forces that were seeking to return to democracy and to, you know, depart from the dictatorial rule that all of these countries were under. So Operation Condor was this unprecedented cooperation of security forces who were operating in each other's countries, operating across borders, detaining people in whatever country, wherever they were found, according to lists set up by all of the countries of the people that they were seeking who had gone into exile, and then taking them to secret prisons, torture centers in the individual countries, and in some cases, in a not insignificant number of cases, actually moving those prisoners across borders back to the countries of origins. And there, in almost all cases, they were killed and disappeared inside the secret prisons in their home countries. So Operation Condor was transnational cross-border repression. It was the first time this had ever occurred in Latin America in, in a systematic and formal way. And of course, in terms of the breadth and extent 
of the repression, uh, the number of victims, the technological capability and infrastructure it used. It's, it's totally unprecedented in Latin America. Okay. So speaking of one of the potential victims, in your book, in the first one at least, you talk about how there was an Uruguayan officer talking about killing U.S. Congressman Edward Koch and how the then CIA director George Herbert Walker Bush had to personally call Koch and warn him that there was a contract on his life because of some bill he introduced into the Congress? Yes. That it's Congressman Edward Koch. Yeah, Koch. Sorry, I mispronounced it. And he was later, he's most famous for being a, one of the most important mayors of New York. But in the 1970s, at the time, the Condor years, when the human rights violations were rampant in South America, Congressman Koch was trying to get a piece of the human rights campaign that was being developed in Congress. So he was one of a group of congressmen, and he decided that he would focus on the country of Uruguay, mm -hmm. uh, where the Tupamaros uh, were quite famous as a guerrilla group. They had essentially been defeated by the end of 1972, but the military were still uh, organizing to try to mop up to try and, and actually were, we now know, were going across borders to, to find the, the survivors of the Tupamaros uh, organization. They were a principal target of Operation Condor. So Congressman Koch effectively proposed an amendment and ultimately passed it to cut off military aid to Uruguay. Uh, because of their violations of human rights. When this bill was, it was an attachment to, an, to another bill, of course, which is an, an amendment. When it was finally passed in mid-1976, mm -hmm. the Uruguayans, unbeknownst to Koch and even that, well, everyone except perhaps the CIA, had created Operation Condor just for this kind of thing. And so the Uruguayans military said, well, we'll ask the Chileans to launch a condor operation up in Washington and get, was the word they used, to get uh, Congressman Koch, in other words, to, to kill him. Uh, the CIA found out about this. And I tell this story in very great detail in the latest edition of the book, because this, it turns out that the Koch story was the mechanism by which the United States learned about the details of Operation Condor and how it was operating. Because the fact is, the relations between the security forces and the CIA agents working in these countries was extremely close and intimate and collaborative. And in fact, the Koch assassination plan was actually revealed to the head of the CIA station in Uruguay, a guy named Frederick Latrache. And eventually, because the ambassador said the, the story involves people finding out that these things were happening, why didn't you tell us? Koch at one point was invited to go to Uruguay. The ambassador didn't know that there was this plot to kill him. Uh, and he was furious when he found out that the CIA already knew about this plot. And so as a result, he 
launched an investigation in Uruguay and determined a lot of the information that the CIA had. And I was able to get this information because it's contained in now declassified documents, which are the cables from the ambassador and the cables from the CIA. So putting the State Department information together with the CIA information, I was able to explore in great detail the way all of this happened. So majority of Operation Condor was assassinating people who were named or decided were enemies of the Pinochet government across countries. So how did they coordinate with other intelligence agencies in South America? The main target of Operation Condor in South America was Argentina, because Argentina was the last country to go under military rule. And so the exiles from Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Chile had gathered in Argentina during 1974 and 1975. And the collaboration began really and predominantly to operate inside Argentina to get the Chilean exiles, to get the Paraguayan exiles, and particularly the Uruguayan exiles. There were there were more than a hundred of the victims were Uruguayan exiles. And so Operation Condor initially was functioning mainly inside Argentina, but also inside the other countries in Latin America, going after whatever targets any of the countries identified. In addition, it was operating outside of Latin America, namely in Europe and in the United States. And those were when the United States discovered that the Operation Condor was targeting people in Europe, that's when the United States kind of blew the whistle on Operation Condor and went from kind of interested observation of this operation to crack down on the left as part of the overall repression, which the United States really had very little problem with. And they discovered, oh my gosh, they are going after targets in Europe, operating inside countries that are NATO allies. And then, of course, the most important assassination occurred in Washington, D.C., the killing of Orlando Letelier, who had been the ambassador to the United States and then was Chile's foreign minister and actually defense minister for a time at the time of of the military coup, an incredibly important uh, international figure who was killed in September 1976 in an operation organized with the support of Condor. This was, you can say, the breaking point for the United States, the collaboration, the kind of wink and nod, oh, it's necessary to crack down on terrorism mentality that the United States had up until this point changed to a great extent. And the United States actually made some, I would say half-hearted, but they did make some efforts to stop some of the operations in Operation Condor. Uh, Okay. And another important person you talk about was one of the previous military generals, Carlos Prats, and his assassination. Like, what happened? And he was in exile in Argentina. So, like, what happened there? So, when the exiles from Chile flooded across the Andes into Argentina, one of them was the man who was Pinochet's predecessor. 
He was the commander-in-chief of the Chilean Armed Forces. He was replaced by Pinochet, and Pinochet pulled off the coup. This was the man who wanted to defend Carlos Prats, was the one who wanted to defend the Constitution and was in no way in agreement with the uh, overthrow of the government. And so he actually went into exile in Argentina. And he continued during 1974 to have contact with his military comrades back in Chile. Mm. That was well known. He wasn't doing this surreptitiously. He was. That was the threat that the government saw is him being able to contact and influence military officials? The what? The Chilean government. The Chilean, the Pinochet, yeah, yeah, personally, but- was afraid that the most powerful military person besides himself was contacting people inside the military in Chile, and he obviously was not in favor of the dictatorship. And that was the reason that Pinochet decided to eliminate him. And so the collaboration that later becomes Operation Condor had already become in a somewhat more informal way in 1974, attempting to target the leftist movements. And so the cooperation between Argentina and Chile was already in place when Chile sent agents inside uh, Argentina to organize a car bombing which in the first day of October 1974 resulted in the bombing that killed uh, Carlos Prats and his wife in one of the nicest neighborhoods of Buenos Aires. It seems like car bombing is one of their MOs. Um, I believe Letelier died from a car bomb too, right? Not only that, it was the same person who who did it. Uh, a man named Michael Townley. Uh, he was an American expatriate living in Chile. He learned how to make car bombs, and he was kind of Dina's expert bomber. And uh, so he conducted both the Letelier assassination in 1976 with a car bomb and the uh, Prats assassination in 1974 and a third assassination attempt in Rome in 1975. Who did he attempt to assassinate in Rome? Uh, in 1975, uh, the collaboration was gearing up, and a group of uh, the Chileans were collaborating not only with their fellow security forces in Latin America, they were also collaborating with fascist terrorist operators in Italy and Cuban exiles uh, who were also involved in, in violent activity. So in September 1975, they teamed up with Italian fascists and a couple Cuban exiles, anti-Castro Cuban exiles. Uh, They traveled to Rome and they organized the shooting of Bernardo Leighton, who had been the vice president of Chile, the minister of interior, a Christian Democrat, somebody who was very important in the efforts to join the left and the center in a alliance against the military dictatorship. So he was a very important political figure in the center, and uh, that's the reason he was the target. And I believe the FBI did end up capturing, is it Michael Townley? Mm-hmm. So did he get any prison, any consequences for any of these assassinations? 
Yes, the, the FBI solved the Letelier murder. And I have to say that that is surprising. At least many, many people were surprised that the United States would investigate with such care uh, and such force uh, and to ultimately establish that an allied government that we had supported, some people say we actually supported putting them uh, in, the, in the overthrow of Chile's democracy. That's kind of an open question, but we definitely supported the Pinochet government after. And so Pinochet, when he carried out the assassination in Washington, D.C., clearly expected that the United States would just sweep this under the rug. But instead, the FBI conducted a very thorough investigation and established who the actual assassins were. They actually found pictures, and I described how they found those in the book, and went down to Chile in early 1978 with those pictures and said to the Chilean government, who are these people? And one of those pictures was of Michael Townley. The Chilean government said, oh, well, he's an American citizen. He must have been working for the CIA. Uh, and they basically used that as a cover story to try to pretend that it was not the Chilean government that did it, even though this guy was working for the Chilean Secret Service. Uh, but they turned him over. And he came back, he was brought back to Washington, and he began to provide evidence. Uh, and he talked and he talked and he talked. Uh, I've actually talked to him as well. Um, and he, he explained exactly uh, how he killed Letelier, who gave him the orders. Um, and he, he ultimately um, dis described uh, the other assassinations as well, although that came years later. He did serve, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, in the United States, and he served about five years. Oh, wow. I'm just very shocked at the cooperation. Um, so can we quickly change gears to Paraguay? And I believe there's a man named, I don't think it's his official name, but Carlos who was also involved in a lot of assassinations, who was a police officer. Um, do you want to talk about his um, assassination attempts and apparently one of them? Wait, I'm not sure who you're referring to. There, there's Carlos the Jackal. It, okay, it, it, it is Carlos. According to Cher, a Paraguayan police found a reference to a Carlos in Santucho's address book with an address or telephone number in Paris. Yes, yes. That that was the famous terrorist whose real name was. Um, oh, let me think. Um, Ilich Ramirez Sanchez. Yeah, Ilich Ramirez Sanchez, and his nickname was Carlos the Jackal, and the Carlos was was Venezuelan, mm -hmm. and the story he was working with the Palestine Liberation Front, the uh, the most radical wing of the Palestinian movement, he had been involved in carrying out terrorist activities in Europe. And the address book that was discovered in Paraguay in a, in a set of documents that was interrogations of people who were captured by Operation Condor, etc. One of the, these address books from one of the Chileans who had been captured and later killed 
had the name uh, Carlos in, in Paris the, with an address in Paris. And the uh, Paraguayans turned that information over to, through other contacts, to the French police, to the French intelligence service, uh, and they sent police to this guy's house. They actually were thinking that it was a Argentine leftist whose cover name was Carlos. They thought that he was operating in Paris, which was not beyond imagination because he had actually traveled to Paris uh, and, and there was a presence of his movement, of the Argentine leftist movement in Paris. So they thought they were going after an Argentine terrorist. Turns out that it was one of the most dangerous terrorists in Europe, Carlos the Jackal, and he came out with guns blazing, killed two policemen, uh, and escaped. He was later on arrested years, uh, a few years later. And I was able to interview him while I was in Paris. By, by, we did the interview by, by fax. He was somebody that had a peripheral relationship with the leftist movements that were the principal targets of Operation Condor. Oh, okay. Um, and how did it operate? So let's say that hypothetically, let's say Pinochet or somebody in the intelligence department just like puts this person's name on it. Like what would be the steps between that and actually, I guess, kidnapping or killing that person? Like what was the logistics? Yes. Uh, that's some of the stuff that I didn't know in mm -hmm. the uh, first edition of the book. And that is very extensively laid out in the edition that just came out last year, including a thing called the reglamento, basically the, the plan of operation for the collaboration among the, the security services. So here's how it worked. There was a general headquarters for Operation Condor, which was uh, at first in Chile and then pretty quickly moved to Argentina. In that headquarters, there were representatives of all of the countries, but principally Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, because they were the ones with the most targets. The other countries would come and go as they needed to, to plan operations. The agreement was that each country had the right to identify a target or targets, and the targets had to be agreed upon by the group. So people would propose targets, and then they would agree on a list of targets, particularly for the operations outside of Latin America. And the idea was that everybody had to agree. Then the next step, they would agree on the targets. Let's say three, in, in one concrete case, a Chilean woman, an Argentine uh, man, uh, and a human rights leader from, turns out he was an Israeli citizen that, that I was able to identify him later. So in this particular operation, they identified, the, the countries identified three targets that they were going to kill in Paris. Mm -hmm. And the first part of the operation is to send a surveillance team to Paris, and the surveillance team would surreptitiously locate the targets. Where do they live? What kind of streets are they on? Is there good lighting in the streets? What are their daily habits? Where do they go where we could possibly target? So that was the surveillance. The third part of the operation was the actual execution, where they would bring in weapons 
and an execution team, which was never the same as the surveillance team, would then attempt to kill the targets. Now, in the case of Letelier, um, in, where, where the murder was actually committed, you have this pattern where there were a surveillance team, which consisted of a woman, uh, actually a former prostitute, and a army lieutenant who came to Washington and, and actually other parts of uh, New Jersey and elsewhere, and did surveillance on Latelier, identified his car, and then passed that information on to Michael Townley, who then pulled together a team of Cuban exiles uh, together with himself to then carry out the execution. So that was the modus operandi. The other aspects of Operation Condor that were particularly relevant to the activities inside the Latin American countries was the creation of an enormous data bank. In the 1970s, computers were very primitive. They were still using cards. Mm -hmm. They were using mainframes. Uh, so having a computer was a big, big deal. And Operation Condor had a computer that was processing the data on the leftist targets uh, all over Latin America. And so each country would contribute information about the people that each country wanted to surveil and ultimately arrest, in many cases, kill. So the steps in, say, Argentina was that Chile or Uruguay would give a list of people that they had established through intelligence operations inside Argentina that they were operating, that they were living in Argentina. In many cases, they were just people with families living in Argentina. They weren't doing anything violent or anything like that. And then the Argentines, together with the Uruguayans or the Chileans, depending on what country the targets were from, they would organize a attack on these people's houses and would kidnap them and would take them to a in most cases, to a secret prison uh, that we know as uh, Automotores or Leti. It was a car repair shop that had been converted into a prison interrogation center. And that was the place that the Operation Condor victims were taken in most cases. Wow. When you said um, secret prison, it just triggered something. Do you think the U.S. government learned anything, any tactics in regards to the war on terror where similar operations were authorized, I guess? Any models? Yeah, very relevant question. I don't know whether we learned and emulated the tactics of Operation Condor, but there's no question that the things that, that the United States did in the war on terror after 9-11 were very similar to Operation Condor. We did intelligence collection. We did collaboration with other countries to help in this intelligence collection. We did renditions. In other words, we took people who were kidnapped in one country and were taken to another country. Usually, I think the countries we established were Egypt and Poland, and there may have been some other ones. And there, with willing collaboration of those countries, those people were tortured on the behalf of the United States. In some cases, actual, I guess in most cases, the CIA 
interrogators and torturers were actually there in those secret prisons and getting information um, using torture from the from the victims. When I was actually writing the book after 9-11, and it was by the time I finished the first edition of the book, uh, I was writing about things that had happened in the 1970s. And by the end of 2003, when I was finishing the book, it was very clear that the United States had carried out many of the same things uh, in the guise of the war on terror. And it's kind of ironic in that the Chilean one started also on a different 9-11. Um, yes, the military coup in Chile was September 11th, 1973, and the attack on the, the Twin Towers in New York was also September 11th, 2001. Want more great interviews with scholars, journalists, and activists? Go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lenin. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. You write in the beginning of the book about how Pinochet is in England and there's a lawyer from Spain who is trying to get him extradited. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? This is in the late nineties, right before he dies, I guess. Yeah. Until, uh, in, in 1998, Pinochet finally, uh, stepped down as the head of the armed forces, even though the country returned to elected government, in 1990, Pinochet still was the head of the armed forces for eight more years. And so really, the shadow of military control was still very strong. But in 1998, he resigned as head of the armed forces, and he became a, a senator, actually. He had written the constitution himself that allowed him to become a senator for life. He didn't have to be elected. Uh, this is the 1980 constitution that he... Yes. Okay, got it. Which is, by the way, in the process of being dismantled as we speak in Chile. It's a hard one. It seems like it's a very hard one to dismantle because it's been taking so long. <laughs> it has taken a long time. That, but that's another story. Uh, in 1998, Pinochet goes to London. He's conducting some, it's basically a business deal to make some money for himself in which he would take advantage of his status as former head of the armed forces. Mm -hmm to carry out some arms sales. And he did this partly in, uh, with some parts of the deal in Spain, parts of the deal in London. He goes to London where he is pretty confident that he's going to be protected because Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister and she was a good friend, a good political friend, uh, part of the authoritarian coalition around the around the world and who, who admired Pinochet because he had defeated communism. Unbeknownst to Pinochet, however, in Spain, a Chilean lawyer named Juan Garces was plotting in, <laughs> in the Spanish courts with another judge named Baltasar Garzón to establish that Operation Condor had conducted the crimes of Operation Condor were subject to universal jurisdiction, which is a concept from the Nuremberg trials 
after World War II against the Nazis. And it's the idea that if a country is not persecuting crimes in that country, other countries can prosecute those crimes under the principle of your juris universal jurisdiction when we're talking about crimes against humanity. And crimes against humanity can, are basically the same, the things that Pinochet was doing, torture, disappearance, and extrajudicial execution. And so the Spanish judge accepted the petition from the Spanish lawyer who had actually lived in Chile, Garces, and approved an, a, an order requesting the detention of Pinochet for questioning. And it was touch and go. Pinochet was about to leave. He, was, he had had a back procedure, on a, a, a small operation on his back, and he was about to uh, leave the country. But Scotland Yard received the order and rushed to execute it. They actually arrested Pinochet in his hospital bed. And this was in October of 1998. And the case then is adjudicated in the British courts. Uh, eventually... This is an extradition hearing, right? It was, and, and right, it was first just a request for information uh, from him uh, as a material witness, right? And then Spain filed an actual extradition request uh, once he was in custody, asking that he be returned to Spain to go on trial for these crimes under universal jurisdiction. And of course, he was held in actually very comfortable conditions because Margaret Thatcher made sure that he was not particularly uncomfortable, but he was in custody for uh, more than a year, 13 months. The extradition was approved, but for humanitarian reasons, Pinochet was allowed to return to Chile um, because he was already in his 80s and supposedly quite infirm. And Chile, the now democratic government of Chile, promised to put him on trial in Chile. Very controversial, very controversial, but that's the way that it worked out. Pinochet was neutralized as a political force from that point on in Chile. So even though he didn't get extradited to Spain, uh, the political effect of the uh, return to Chile was, was quite important. Did he ever get tried in Chile? He, I mean, trials are kind of a relative term. We think of trials as in the courtroom, hearing witnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, that never happened. But he was taken into custody at least once. He was under indictment for crimes associated with Operation Condor. And, and, uh, and in, in other cases, he was indicted as well in other cases, also human rights crimes. And he was forced to give testimony in his own uh, defense. They do that before the trial. And everything but not actually put on trial. They, they never got to the stage of a formal trial, and he died uh, in 2006, I think it was. Is Operation Condor related at all to the mass kidnappings that happened in Argentina that they call Los Desaparecidos? Sure. I think the number of Operation Condor victims who were disappeared in Argentina is 
I could look at my database, but it's it's more than 200. Okay. So what's mind-blowing about all of this is that we're not talking about run-of-the-mill bad guys, dictatorships who are nasty to their own people, put them in jail, and sometimes kill them. During the Condor years, which in Argentina was called the Dirty War, there were thousands of people who were being arrested and killed and disappeared in most cases. But even more mind-blowing, there were hundreds, probably more than a thousand foreigners who were arrested and subject to this repression. The ones who were targeted, most of them were targeted by Operation Condor. In other words, they were targeted not because of what they were doing for Argentine leftist organizations. They were targeted for what they had been doing in their own countries in the years before that. Mm. They were targeted because they were trying to organize resistance to the dictatorships. So it was transnational repression. And there were hundreds of people who were caught, detained by Operation Condor and killed in Argentina and in the other countries. The total number of Operation Condor victims, the vast majority of whom were killed and disappeared is, in my count, 654. Wow. Okay. And was there ever any accountability in any of these countries for the organizers, the planners, the big guns, the masterminds? Yes, although not as effective as we would like. Um, There were trials in Argentina as early as 1983 most against the top generals for the general repression. Operation Condor as such was not named in those uh, those trials. They were then eventually pardoned by one of the Argentine presidents. They got out of jail. Uh, And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were additional prosecutions in Argentina, which resulted in verdicts and sentences Uh, verdicts of guilty and sentences for dozens of military people. I list all of the defendants and those who were convicted in my book. So there were trials in, but of course, many of the military people had already died by the time the verdict was reached uh, in 2018. In Chile, the trials began soon after democracy was returned to Chile in the 90s. There was a trial in the Letelier case uh, in 1995, in which the head of the Chilean secret police, the Dina, and his number two, both of them were convicted, and they were jailed in a, again, a special prison, somewhat cushy, but still it was a prison, and they were kept in jail for a few years, and then they were let go. But then other trials, including the Operation Condor trial, resulted in convictions of them again, and they were jailed, and both of them, uh, one of them is still alive, died in, in prison. Now, in all of these countries, there have been trials of one sort or another. The actual conviction rate and the, more importantly, did you actually convict somebody before they were too old to go to prison is very low. But to me, the important thing is that these trials, number one, they resulted in society as a whole, the judicial system, determining the guilt of the military people who carried out these 
atrocious activities. Number two, and this is a little bit my own agenda, these trials resulted in an enormous amount of new information that we never would have had had it not been for the systematic investigations. Thousands of people were interviewed, and those interviews are available to people like me who want to do the research. So the truth has been established very solidly, even though most of the guilty were already too old by the time the trials were finished. Oh, okay. Um, one last question. Um, I know you said in your new book that will come out later this year, you write about the victims. Had any of the victims' family members said that they felt vindicated or they felt some sort of peace because of these trials? Like, did anyone hint that to you? You know, I, I kind of avoid speaking for victims mm-hmm. uh, because I, I tell their story to the extent they tell me their story. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I've not interviewed all of them. I've interviewed probably more than 100. I, I wouldn't say that these people have found peace through the trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there's a degree of satisfaction uh, that a measure of justice has been done. These are people who are incredibly injured psychologically, uh, physically, because many of the survivors, um, many of the family members themselves were, were prisoners. This was a generation that was destroyed in many ways by the repression. And I, I have been personally so devastated myself by talking about, by writing about the stories of family after family after family in which the father was killed in many cases, the father and the mother were killed. The children were left as orphans. In some cases, the children were then kidnapped by the military and adopted by other military families Ooh. and only later discovered who their real families were. The level of tragedy that was the result of this Condor years repression, it just, just cannot be underestimated. Other victims' families, and why I tell the story of Paulina Veloso, whose whose husband was kidnapped after he came from on a mission from Switzerland to Argentina with the intention of going to Chile on a mission for the Communist Party. And he was kidnapped. He was captured by Operation Condor in Argentina, ultimately taken across the border into Chile uh, to a secret prison a prison so secret we didn't even discover its existence in 2005. And his name was Alexei Jacquard. Paulina told me his story and cooperated completely. She was very interested in getting the truth out there about everything that had happened. And for her, that was an important part of the process of healing. And she has had, you know, a successful life as a, you know, somebody who's has had important positions in Chile, but has never put behind her what happened to her husband, who she married when she was 18 years old. And their life was together was ruined by what happened. But her determination is I've admired so much 
that she was so determined to make sure that the story gets out there. Remember, that doesn't mean just what she knows. It means helping uh, uncover the truth about what the military did, helping uncover what the part what the Communist Party uh, was doing in organizing this operation, which, let me tell you, is not easy because it's a very secretive organization. So the victims' families have done what is possible in the context of the terrible tragedy that, that befell them all, and that is to try to witness the prosecutions resulting in verdicts of guilty against those who committed these things, but in all cases, to cooperate to make sure that the truth uh, comes out about what happened. Oh, wow. That is, uh, uh, I'm actually speechless because, like, it's kind of hard for anyone to fathom the large scale of this. Do you know when your English version of the book will come out for American readers? Uh, We don't have a publication date, but we are thinking of late this year. So hopefully by September, October a good time for books to come out. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this second interview. And like always, it was a pleasure. Are you working on anything else in the future? Or is this your, for now, is this the big project? Well, this is what I'm working on right now, because it's basically an editorial task, because I have to take everything that I wrote for the Spanish edition and not, not revise it, but I basically have to cut it down to a 350 or 400 page book. So I have to cut a couple hundred pages that would really be repetitious with the first edition of the book that you read. So I'm doing that and I hope to have that done in a couple months. And then I'm working on a story, uh, a related investigation about two Americans who were killed in Chile right after the military coup. And the story of their deaths was told in a movie called Missing, which came out in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to tell a different story than the story that came out in the movie, which is closer to the truth. Um, well, amazing. And let us know when that comes out. And thank you again for coming. It has been a really big pleasure interviewing you. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that you took the took the time to to study these issues and I hope you'll look at the new book when it comes out and appreciate the the new details which you now have the context to to better understand there's a lot of new material in the new book absolutely well have a good rest of the evening well thank you it's nice talking to you same here music for this show is done by Rex You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.